Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Welcome to Think Humanities, the podcast. Today, the pandemic and nonprofits in Kentucky. We find ourselves in an unfamiliar world of dizzying statistics, stories of loss and heartbreak, unaccustomed separation from friends and colleagues, and uncertainty on so many fronts. Many for-profit businesses are and will continue to struggle. Unemployment levels have reached unimaginable numbers. But what is the status of the nonprofit sector in Kentucky? Are they suffering too? My guest today is Danielle Clore, Executive Director and CEO of the Kentucky Nonprofit Network. Later on, we'll be joined by Tom Musgrave of the Kentucky Arts Council, who will talk with us about the aid they are giving the nonprofit arts sector. And I'll have some additional news about uh, Kentucky Humanities and what we're doing for humanities nonprofits across the state. Uh, Danielle, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Bill. And just to begin sort of in an elementary way, if you will, what is a nonprofit and what distinguishes a nonprofit from a a for-profit organization? Well, nonprofits have some pretty unique um, characteristics and and the word or phrase nonprofit is a bit misleading. Um, I think a lot of folks think of nonprofits and think, well, they can't earn any revenue or they can't end any year uh, with money in the bank, which is not true. Uh, It just means that that is not why they exist. Uh, Nonprofits have a very um, specific uh, community benefit. Um, And they exist to serve their communities in a variety of ways. So whether that be um, human services or the arts and humanities or environmental or healthcare or education, uh, they have a mission and they must be true to that mission in their operations. And uh, unlike a for-profit corporation, if a nonprofit ends the year uh, with money in the bank, and they should because that's a good management practice, uh, it's unlike a for-profit where we would divide that up among shareholders and share it. Those any excess revenue have to be reinvested in the nonprofit's mission. So that's a key distinguishing feature. Um, as well, nonprofits um, are exempt from corporate income taxes. We do pay payroll taxes, um, but um, are not paying a lot of the taxes in exchange for that um, community benefit. And then um, to the extent allowed by law, donations, charitable donations to nonprofits um, are tax deductible. Now, very few folks um, are able to enjoy that benefit um, because we had some changes um, via the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act a couple years ago that um, dramatically decreased the number of individuals who itemized their deductions. Um, So we're seeing a significant impact of that piece. But it is still... um, a distinguishing factor of a nonprofit organization that their uh, gifts, if the donor does itemize, are uh, tax deductible. Well, during this uh, pandemic, this horrible uh, coronavirus uh, uh, disease that has spread across uh, the world, we hear so much about uh, the for-profit sector, uh, whether it's on a large scale like uh, airlines or uh, just down to mom and pops and people trying to exist uh, running a a little small uh, food truck or restaurant. 
And we've heard, because of you and others, uh, about the nonprofit sector too. But I don't think we're hearing as much on, on a national scale and maybe not even in the statewide uh, news network uh, about how nonprofits are suffering also. And, and I know this to be true. Um, Kentucky Humanities is a nonprofit. Uh, Kentucky uh, Arts, we'll talk about uh, in just a few minutes. Uh, they are a state agency, but uh, supply a number of grants to the nonprofit uh, sector. Uh, so just tell us uh, about the nonprofit in Kentucky and how badly they've been um, affected uh, by the coronavirus. Well, I think, um, you know, nonprofits touch our lives in in ways on a daily basis that we don't even realize, you know, and I think, you know, it's easy to get lost in the definition that I just gave you of what is a nonprofit, but, but we all come into contact with these organizations in so many ways. And so in times like this, it is certainly very critical organizations rise to the top and you see food banks and food pantries and human service organizations. And all of those are quote unquote frontline organizations and are vitally important to communities and states and even federal response um, and partnering with government to be sure that needs are met. Um, but we also like to bring up a really critical impo- uh, point about nonprofits in Kentucky, and quite frankly, it's, it's true across the country, but nonprofits are the fourth largest private sector industry in this state. Um, so while our work and our missions are critically important, we're important to Kentucky's economy. So when you're also talking about layoffs and, and the economic impact of the for-profit sector, the nonprofit sector is hurting just as much, um, and it, it is just as damaging damaging to Kentucky's economy when nonprofits are suffering. Um, We've got one in 10 Kentuckians who work for a nonprofit um, and over $7.5 billion in annual wages for the sector. So uh, in some Kentucky communities, a nonprofit may be the largest employer. So that economic impact um, is important for folks to understand as well. And you know this, Bill, nonprofits are, uh, the sector is very diverse. <laughs> so, um, and that is, uh, is part of the challenge of quantifying um, the impact of this pandemic on the sector, because many organizations are doing more. They are, quote unquote, frontline. They're seeing um, increased expenses and increased need for services. They're actually trying to hire, um, you know, and then you've got other organizations who've been essentially brought to a standstill. Um, they're not able to provide any of their direct services, or they've had to pivot and try to do some of that virtually. And we've seen incredible innovation on that front. Um, And, you know, we did a survey, we had almost 600 responding organizations from across Kentucky, and 92% had been dramatically impacted. Um, And again, sometimes that's, um, I don't want to say in a positive way, but that's an increase in services, and but that doesn't come without cost. Um, And then for others, they're seeing a real hit to the revenue because they're not able uh, to provide any services um, and have, you know, in, in all practical purposes, been kind of brought to a halt. For those who might not know, could you, uh, without calling anybody out that uh, that might not want to be called out, could you give us some examples of uh, some nonprofits? And I'll talk a little bit more about the humanities uh, environment in just a moment. But when you talk about uh, food banks, and you mentioned a couple of others, but from on a on a large scale, uh, maybe somebody who's operating a a a much larger nonprofit down to just uh, uh, one and two person operations. Uh, give us an idea of, of 
what this landscape looks like? Yeah, so to give an example, um, a residential facility for children, for example, um, you know, so they may have um, kids in that program who are there because they've been abused or neglected or have any number of issues. And so, you know, that may be a group of children who um, were mainstreamed into public school. And so even though they lived at this residential facility for their treatment purposes, they were still going to school um, during the day. Well, now that schools are closed and they're back on, you've got organizations having to hire uh, an entirely new shift of workers um, to not only uh, supervise and support those children, but now educate them, you know, as as a lot of us parents are doing uh, as well. So that's a new expense for them. And they're not getting reimbursed um, in their contracts with the state to care for these vulnerable kids for those new expenses. Um, You know, so those are an example of of some really large organizations. Um, Then you have organizations who, for example, might um, work internationally. Obviously, they've been brought to a screeching halt regardless of the size of the organization. So they may work with refugee populations or international trade, for example. Um, And so they have really had some some challenges. Um, Arts and humanities organizations in particular that have face-to-face productions or performances you know, have really struggled. And again, we've seen some really fantastic innovation, which I think has been not only good for keeping them and their missions out in the community, but it's probably good for our mental health to be able to experience a lot of that, even though we're at home. Um, And so one of the things we did find interesting in this survey that I mentioned to you is we asked nonprofits about their quote unquote savings, their operating reserves. And alarmingly, um, the responses were that 50% half had less than three months. And when we dug deeper into that data, we anticipated those would be small nonprofits. And that actually wasn't the case. It was actually some of our larger organizations. And I think because a lot of them rely on their partnerships with government, whether that be Medicaid reimbursement or any other contracts, um, you know, that they're operating on a really tight margin. Um, And so, you know, you've got that concern around, do they have reserves in the bank? And again, many, many don't. Um, And then we also know from some data we captured and shared um, several months before the crisis that um, uh, average um, in the nonprofit sector in Kentucky, their average expenses are 98% of our revenue, which means our margin, our razor thin margin is scary already. Then you throw this uh, crisis in the loop and they've got few operating reserves. And so we've got a recipe for disaster for some of our, our most favorite charities that we know are really critical, not only to meeting needs, but again, for that quality of life that we want to be sure we have on the other side of this. How have you seen nonprofits, uh, other than what you've mentioned, uh, maybe producing programs virtually or trying to do their best uh, using the internet. How have you seen them uh, work through the pandemic uh, to date? And how do you expect them to continue to perform uh, throughout the the first uh, few weeks of uh, late spring and summer? Yeah, I think that's uh, been one of the you know, if there is a silver lining in any of this at all, I think it's a lot of the red tape that many organizations had experienced in going virtual, telehealth, and some of these other things have been eased. 
Um, and so, you know, we've heard from organizations who are eager to work with us to help be sure those things are maintained, you know, that, okay, we finally got over this hurdle and have quote unquote leapfrogged, you know, years of bureaucracy and red tape. And we don't want to go back because we're able to be so much more flexible in meeting needs um, in this scenario. So I think um, that's going to be, I think, an important part of this. I think the other, um, you know, with regard to quote unquote reopening um, is there's just some challenges around that um, and some liability and quite frankly, some increased costs for organizations and they'll have to evaluate, can they do that. Um, and so I think, you know, we had a call with uh, Governor Bashir last week, last Thursday, and, um, you know, he was really good in articulating to folks that our goal is not going to be to get back to where we were. Our goal is to take one step forward from where we are now. And I think that was really hard for a lot of folks to hear, especially those who do face-to-face -face kinds of programming. And, and for whatever reason, it is not possible to do it virtually. And, and for, you know, for some organizations, that's true. Um, so I think we're going to have to, I think we're still figuring some of this out. Um, so if this face-to-face -face restriction is longer than we anticipated, how do we deal with that? And even if it's not, and our organization, for example, can't, meet the opening requirements. We don't have the additional funds to do what's being asked and required of organizations who do have face-to-face. -face. How do we deal with that? So I think it's early to tell, um, but we do, again, know that there have been some beautiful examples of taking things virtually, educational programming, um, counseling, mental health counseling, um, supportive parents. But as you know, Bill, it has also really highlighted a lot of inequities that exist in our society around education and healthcare and, for goodness sakes, broadband access. If you don't have the internet right now, you are really um, struggling um, to get much of anything accomplished. And so I think those are hopefully some things that we will be able to, to use as a, as a commonwealth uh, to make some changes. So you mentioned uh, liability and increased costs. Uh, could you give us some other examples of, of that, especially along the, the liability uh, front? Uh, when um, museums, uh, in the case of uh, humanities, uh, or uh, one of the residential facilities or childcare, when they uh, decide that they can open and open safely, uh, are, are we talking about the possibility of carrying extra insurance, for example? Uh, is that the liability that you're speaking of? Well, I think that's going to be an incredible question of what will insurance cover and not cover. And we've heard from members with that very question that they are, you know, for lack of a better word, terrified of how they're going to deliver services. And, um, you know, I think the other increased costs are personal protective equipment. You know, now if everyone has to have masks, do we provide those for our employees? Do we ensure that they bring their own? How do we do that? If we are required to do temperature checks, where do we get all these thermometers and how do we do that? Um, you know, and then if you've got folks who are not practicing social distancing um, in their personal life, for example, and that's widely viewed on social media and those folks continue to come to work and now we're putting people <laughs> at risk. I mean, I just think there are so many um, concerns for organizations and um, 
you know, the governor has asked various industries to put together their plan for reopening and how they plan to do that. And part of our work at Kentucky Nonprofit Network as the state association is we want to compile a lot of that and submit kind of a, a broad general recommendation and for organizations and subsectors of the nonprofit world that are specific to support those. Um, and right now what we're seeing is all over the place. Um, and so I think that's the challenge. Unlike some other industries that are very specific, chiropractors or dentists, you know, where the, the association can come together with their recommendations, you know, museums have a whole host of different issues rather than Kentucky Nonprofit Network, who has very little interaction with the public unless we hold an event, which now we know we need to do virtually. So I think that gives you a glimpse of part of the, the challenges there, that staffing could be an expense, insurance, although we're not sure what will and won't be covered, and I suspect the insurance industry isn't sure either. Um, and then, you know, a lot of organizations have benefited from relief loans or grants, as I know that's part of our discussion today, which is fantastic, but they also know their limits to those dollars. And so so I think we've seen folks breathe a sigh of relief, but as they approach June 30, when those dollars must be spent, uh, at least with one of the relief loans, there are really significant concerns about what's next, especially if the new normal is not what it looked like in January. Before we bring in uh, Tom Musgrave from the Kentucky Arts Council, one uh, final question, uh, and then uh, Danielle will continue to talk with you and, and Tom. Um, do you, uh, and I would imagine you do expect closures or expect some uh, nonprofits not to open their doors or not be able to uh, continue to, to do what they've been doing for many years? Yeah, that's, we will definitely see a fewer number of organizations, I think, on the other side of this, and, and that's unfortunate. And, you know, I think you've got organizations who, again, are seeing an increase in services, so they will uh, hopefully be able to receive funding for that or donations for that work, and that will be important. I think there are some organizations who will um, merge with others. Um, this will be the time for that. And then, you know, you will probably see some organizations who, for lack of a better term, hibernate um, and, you know, just know that until there is a vaccine that we're going to kind of cease operating the way we have. And that may mean laying some staff off, but we aren't necessarily closing our doors. Um, and then you will see organizations who do have to close their doors and those assets of that organization have to be redistributed uh, to another nonprofit. So we are trying to gear up for that at K&N to, number one, help organizations understand what their options are going to be. And then number two, once they do that, what are the resources so that they can you know, use those dollars that they've been entrusted. For example, if they are going out of business and closing their doors, how do they do that um, in a way that, that puts those dollars back in the community as is, is required by law? But it's going to be a really interesting piece. And, and I mentioned our survey. We um, have kind of put a hold on that survey because the uncertainty. People can't fill out the survey. They're really not sure at this point where things stand. And again, I think as we move through May and get closer to June, and see what quote unquote opening up has really looked like, and they continue to evaluate their finances, we will know more. Tom Musgrave uh, is, uh, as I said, the communications director of the Kentucky Arts Council, uh, and uh, they're headquartered in Frankfurt, but they are a statewide uh, agency uh, that serve the uh, arts uh, community. Uh, Tom, uh, thanks very much for joining the podcast today. And let me just uh, begin by asking, uh, you uh, could you give us an idea of how the uh, 
a pandemic has affected uh, the arts sector in Kentucky? It's uh, it's affected several. Obviously, um, Danielle touched upon uh, the, the nonprofit arts organizations, obviously, that have been impacted. The individual artists who um, who make their living, either their entire living or, or, or part of it, off of the arts have been significantly impacted. Um, I can give a great example. Last month, we were to have hosted the Kentucky Crafted Market, which is an annual showcase um, art and craft show that that we host um, to feature artists in the Kentucky Crafted Program. Um, Several artists, that's the first show that they do of the year, and they count on it to sort of sustain themselves through the rest of the show season. One of those days that uh, the three-day show is is dedicated strictly to wholesale buying. We had to cancel that um, that show, and as a result, a lot of artists lost out on the potential revenue from from that. And they are, um, I know several who have actually um, had to to uh, to take advantage of the uh, the expanding of unemployment benefits to those who are freelance or contract self-employed folks. Um, so it's, it's very real for individual artists right now, um, because not only, not only was the Kentucky crafted, uh, show canceled, but several other, um, other annual craft shows, art and craft shows have been canceled, uh, removing those opportunities. Now they can still, um, manage their online businesses. Um, but you know, it also, you know, they. Uh, I know artists who can't go out to a fabric uh, shop to to purchase uh, to purchase fabric or other other supplies that they may they may need to um, to to do their art. Um, so it it it's systemic. Um, it trickles down. One of the things that uh, you've been able to do, uh, we've also participated in, and that's. Uh, uh, a few weeks ago, when Congress passed uh, the uh, Stimulus uh, Act, uh, uh, the CARES Act, uh, and was signed uh, by the president, uh, monies uh, begin to uh, flow throughout the United States. Uh, your funding came from uh, the National Endowment for the Arts. Uh, the humanities uh, money was funneled through the National Endowment for the Humanities. Uh, just as a, a bit of history, uh, at, at one time, uh, in 1965, when Lyndon Johnson uh, signed uh, the legislation to uh, produce for the first time the National Endowment for the Arts and Humanities, and then uh, a few years later, they were divided into separate uh, uh, agencies. Uh, we uh, are under the arm of the NEH, uh, you under the uh, NEA, but uh, as you often uh, hear, I'm sure that a lot of people uh, still are um, misunderstand that uh, arts and humanities, although uh, used in the same sentence, in the same breath, uh, are, are separate uh, entities, both nationally and in the state. You received uh, quite a bit of CARES uh, funding uh, for your grantees, as did the uh, uh, Kentucky Humanities. So tell us about uh, your effort to distribute uh, the funds that were allocated to you to many, many uh, nonprofits and, and art uh, sector uh, agencies uh, throughout the state of Kentucky. 
Sure. Um, to give you an exact figure, we received $454,100 um, from the NEA for uh, through the, the CARES Act. Um, that's uh, That amount was a portion of, of, of $75 million that was allotted to the NEA uh, via the CARES Act. Um, the funding was intended to assist nonprofit arts organizations to prevent, prepare for, and respond to the coronavirus domestically or internationally. Um, here in Kentucky, that money is going to benefit 93 nonprofit arts organizations who received our um, the Kentucky Arts Council's Kentucky Arts Partnership Grant in fiscal year 2020. Um, and those organizations span 32 Kentucky counties. Um, now to, to give a little history uh, of the Kentucky Arts Partnership Grant, that is the largest block of grants that we give in any given year. In, uh, in fiscal year 2020, we awarded uh, one point or more than $1.2 million to those 93 arts organizations across the state. Um, this CARES funding is going to be can be used to support salaries, administration costs, and related subgranting to the nonprofit arts sector in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, it it helps keep the lights on, um, and it's important because these arts organizations they shop locally, they advertise in local media outlets, and they employ local people. So um, the NEA gave, uh, granted this money to each of the states with the uh, um, with the urging that that we that we distribute it quickly. And we um, the application deadline we are requiring uh, those 93 arts organizations to fill out a simple application and have it to us uh, at least by May 15th. But we have already started receiving some and, and we hope to have funds distributed throughout the uh, the first half of May. Our uh, situation is just slightly different. Uh, the money we received from uh, Congress uh, through the National Endowment for the Humanities uh, and then to Kentucky Humanities and all the state councils, 56 of them uh, across the, the United States and uh, U.S. Uh, territories, $30 million was directed to state humanities councils to support programs. We're well underway with our CARES Act uh, applications. Uh, our uh, date was uh, last week uh, that the applications were due. We will begin to analyze and look at all of those and uh, appropriate that money uh, as quickly as we can to get them out uh, to uh, local historic and cultural sites, uh, libraries, museums, and, and other humanities uh, institutions across the state of Kentucky. And I would imagine, uh, Danielle, that uh, the the money, you're, you're talking almost an additional $1 million in, um, in infusion of, uh, of money that, uh, that Congress has seen fit to recognize the uh, art community as well as the uh, humanities community in Kentucky. That has to go a long way in uh, supporting nonprofits uh, in the arts and the humanities across the Commonwealth. Absolutely. And um, definitely we were pleased to see that. And, you know, it's and part of that is education. Again, you know, we, we want to be sure that Kentuckians understand 
um, the value of um, the arts community for all of the ways um, that Tom just articulated. You know, they employ people, they're spending money. And again, you know, when you try to um, imagine your life without some of your favorite you know, opportunities um, that are important to our quality of life. And we all know businesses want to locate in communities that are vibrant um, and thriving. And we know that the arts and humanities are part of that. So absolutely, I think um, that was really good news um, for the arts community. And I know there, there have been um, efforts, um, I think, both in Lexington and Louisville um, to do specific funds um, for arts. Uh, organizations as well as specific artists, um, you know, who could have been impacted and are able to apply for um, the emergency injury, I think it's EIDL, I apologize, uh, for those loans as an independent contractor, but, you know, they are, they're still, those individual artists are suffering as well. Tom, has the response uh, from some of your um, known recipients uh, uh, been quite positive? Um, yes, they've been supportive. Um, obviously, you know, everybody is there. There, there are so many question marks um, in in these times. But overall, everybody is very grateful for to first of all to be to be recognized that the arts are integral to um, to a society such as uh, such as the one we live in. Um, because nobody's going to movies anymore, and you don't really you kind of you kind of take for granted um the experience of going to a theater um to see a movie or a live performance or a concert when you aren't able to do that and so i think um they recognize that and are hopefully positioning themselves when we are able to reopen whatever form that takes to um to jump on that and to remind people of uh, of the importance of the arts in their communities and in their lives, they are. Uh, but but for now, they are they're grateful to be uh, getting the support and for the recognition uh, of the importance of the arts sector uh, that comes with that support. And I would think, uh, if, if I might add, the same thing about uh, uh, the humanities. Uh, and Danielle, you mentioned Lexington and Louisville. Uh, they are uh, in some of the agencies, uh, entities in those cities will be recipients of this uh, uh, grant money. But just think about uh, rural Kentucky. Just think about a, uh, a small uh, local museum, a historic site. Uh, for example, the Hopewell Museum in Paris that might only employ uh, one or two full-time uh, people on, on a yearly basis. But it contains uh, that county's uh, history and uh, artifacts, and uh, they're on display for people, school children, uh, to learn about uh, their roots over many generations. Uh, so it goes from um, the, the very uh, smallest um, to the largest, uh, like the, the Filson and um, a Society in Louisville, the Fraser Museum, uh, many of our larger uh, areas that uh, attract thousands and thousands of people. Uh, each year. So uh, it's been difficult. There's certainly not enough money to go around to, to everyone, but uh, we're trying. And uh, let me just uh, sum up and, and conclude by asking Danielle, what, what are the next steps for the nonprofit sector in, in Kentucky? What are you trying to do? Or uh, is it impossible at this point? You said you had to cease uh, your, your survey because there's so many unknowns. 
what um, what is going to be um, six months, a year from now, and, and what your best advice to uh, the nonprofit sector might be? Oh, wow. Yeah, I do. I do think there are many unknowns. And, and we as a staff, just when we think we have a small, tiny team of three, uh, just when we think we have our finger on the pulse of what's next, um, things change. So I think, um, you know, my advice for organizations is to closely follow um, what the guidelines for quote unquote reopening and the timeframes will be um, and, and pay attention to those and evaluate your own organization's ability to comply and to open up and can you absorb those costs? Do you have the capacity um, and evaluate that? And then, you know, you've got to keep really, I don't want to say constant, but regular eyes on your cash flow. Um, you know, if you were able to receive relief funds, either from the wonderful programs that both of you have offered or from um, any of the two loan programs, that's wonderful. Um, and then there are also some other incentives with regard to payroll taxes for folks who did not take advantage of those for keeping folks on. So there are a lot of benefits there, um, but those are not going to be the things that carry you necessarily into the fall. And, you know, I think for organizations who are troubled by their finances and their ability to weather through this, um, will need to reach out and understand what their options are um, if they are going to have to close their doors. But there's just a, an enormous amount of, and, I, and we're all dealing with this, whether nonprofit or for-profit, um, you know, with we're trying to take care of ourselves and our families and our staff. And then, you know, ultimately, if we are trying to reopen uh, those who we come into contact with, um, you know, our, our patrons, our volunteers, our donors. Um, so there is a lot to tackle. And I, I wish that I had that, that answer. But we encourage folks to get, if they haven't already, and again, many, many have, creative on how they can still meet their mission and articulate that to funders so that, again, they might be able to weather this better, better than others. Well, I enjoyed uh, speaking uh, to you both uh, this morning. I appreciate your time. I hope um, although I've enjoyed very much our conversation, I hope we don't ever have to do another podcast, which is titled Nonprofits and the Pandemic. So uh, good health and best wishes uh, to both of you. And I'm sure this has been uh, invaluable to our audience. Uh, thank you very much for joining me on today's Think Humanities podcast. Thanks so much, Bill. Thank you, Bill. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.